This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. This week, I caught up with Dr. Yuri Sack. Now, Yuri is responsible for strategic communications for Ukraine's Ministry of Defence. He's a private sector communications expert and Oxford graduate. And of course, Yuri's life was upended when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. Now, I caught up with Yuri to discuss everything that's happening inside Ukraine right now relating to Russia's invasion, the bloody battle of Bakhmut, the coming counter-offensive and the stakes there, what life was like before the war for ordinary Ukrainians, how Putinism has infected Russia's soul, why Australian support matters so much and what we can be doing now to support Ukraine's efforts, why a land war in Eastern Europe is central to the fate of the world, and how despite everything, Ukraine will win. Um, this is a really great conversation, a really powerful conversation with Yuri. He's a friend of mine and I got to know very well. And so uh, please follow Yuri on Twitter and do what you can to support the Ukrainian effort. Donate uh, to NGOs, but also pressure politicians to send the weapons that they need uh, because people like Yuri are doing amazing work inside Ukraine, but they can't do it alone. So without further uh, explanation from me. Enjoy the episode. Yuri Sack, welcome to Diplomates. How are you, mate? Thank you very much, Misha, for inviting me. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, look forward to our exchange of ideas about how to bring an end to this aggressive war against the free nation, against right. Ukraine. Now... We're going to talk all things invasion, but for those who aren't following the war on an hourly basis like you and I are, maybe you could give us a little bit of a quick snapshot of where the war is right now. Uh, much of the focus right now is on Bakhmut, which is an eastern uh, city. There's been much intense fighting over the last 10 months, but how is the battlefront right now as you see it? So at the moment, in the eastern part of the front line, in the east of Ukraine, there are a couple of cities which essentially are, you know, like a World War One trench warfare. It's street to street fighting. Its position of fighting is close battle. Uh, Russians are throwing everything they have to gain control of these cities: uh, Bakhmut, Avdiivka, Marinka. These are all parts of uh, either Donetsk or Luhansk Oblast. And, uh, you know, they are taking staggering losses, I mean, the Russian army, because our approach has been to continue to protect those cities, to hold them uh, for as long as our military necessity makes it sensible. And our president said many times that we will continue to hold these cities uh, for as long as we can. And look, we are now in a situation where Russians have been trying to, for example, when it comes to Bakhmut, they've been trying to gain control of this city for over six months. So think about it. The second allegedly superpower, the second largest army in the world, is unable to take control of a city that used to have, before the large-scale invasion, the population of about 75,000 people. Now, that is a very telling factor when it comes to trying to understand 
what the Russian army really is like, you know, how much has been degraded during the last 13 months by the Ukrainian army. And, you know, this is just a signal to the world that Ukraine can and will win this war because, you know, Russia is a paper tiger uh, and we just need a bit more international military support to complete our mission, to liberate our land. So a lot has been talked about this looming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Now, of course, we don't know when that will be. It's very tightly held for obvious reasons. But how important is this counteroffensive? Your foreign minister said recently that while Ukraine hopes to make gains, uh, it shouldn't be seen as decisive. Are you worried as a representative of the Ukrainian government that Western support is hinging on Ukrainian success in the battlefield in this next few months? Well, I, um, in this context, would like to use this phrase. You know, sometimes it is there is a risk of not seeing the forest behind the trees. So in my view, there is too much attention to this counteroffensive as if it is a campaign that will start at the blow of a whistle and then something magic will begin to happen. So one of our uh, military uh officials said yes and he's right that you know in many respects the counter the counter this whole war is our counteroffensive because from day one we are doing everything we can to push the enemy out of our land um of course and what we have to bear in mind is that we are determined to do everything we can to end this war in 2023 so we are preparing for our counteroffensive and we need to liberate you know the uh, territories that have been illegally annexed by Russia in 2022. We need to liberate uh, Crimea, which is an internationally recognized Ukrainian territory. We need to liberate Donbass, uh, meaning Donetsk and Luhansk region. So all that is possible, and uh, nobody can predict how uh, the counteroffensive will unfold because it's a dynamic warfare. You know, we will do all we have to to ensure that on our side, it is a smart war, minimum losses on our side, maximum losses on the enemy's side, and creating conditions in which it will be unsustainable for the enemy to continue to carry out these atrocities uh, and, and fight, uh, which is exactly what happened, for example, in the Kherson. You know, when before the Kherson, uh, before Kherson was liberated, um, we've created conditions which resulted in Russia being unable to resupply. We've destroyed their logistical hubs. We've destroyed bridges that they were using to, uh, you know, resupply their forces. And then they left. So, um, you know, we, we are a peaceful, loving nation. So we will try to achieve our goals with minimum losses and with maximum impact. I just want to take you back to the beginning of the war. This war has been going for 14 months. Uh, you're not a military man. Uh, by trade, you're a private sector guy, communications expert. So what were your emotions in late February 2022? The war appears to be coming then, of course, the outbreak of war. And, uh, yeah, did you believe it would happen? And what were your emotions as you saw Russian tanks and troops heading towards Kiev, the Ukrainian capital? Did you believe it would happen? And, and how did you feel then? Until the very last moment when it actually happened, um, I, you know, my, my mind was telling me that I should take these uh, images of Russian tanks and Russian troops being amassed along the Ukrainian border seriously. 
But of course, you know, I'm a human being. Uh, I have small children. I was hoping that, you know, it will be resolved somehow without the actual uh, large-scale invasion. Uh, when it actually happened, of course, my first thoughts were about the security of my children. So on the first night when the first missiles hit Kyiv, I grabbed my children. I took them, rushed them quickly to the basement. And this is where we spent the next couple of days before I was able to actually evacuate them from Kyiv. Um, you know, it was um, worry and for the security and safety of my family. But at the same time, I felt confident that, uh, you know, Ukrainians will put up a fight. I knew that we will not allow the aggressor to uh, take away our freedom from us because this is something that, you know, for centuries we've been uh, fighting for, we've been committed to. And uh, another feeling during the first days, uh, and look, during the first days it was so interesting to see how we as a nation we celebrated, honestly, we celebrated every day that we were not defeated. We celebrated. So first it was one day we're still standing. Two days we're still standing. Now, when we've reached one week, it was like winning, you know, all the Olympic gold medals that you could because we were standing up against the, like, evil empire, the second largest army in the world. Back then, we had no idea you know, how well Russians have prepared for this campaign, you know, how meticulous their plans were, have been. All we had to go by was our determination, our kind of courage, if you like. And so we celebrated every day of, of, of putting up this fight. Now, as the time went by, of course, this uh, determination only grew stronger and with every day. The conviction, the belief that we will ultimately defeat this enemy grew. And I think we've projected that onto the international arena as well. We've proven to the world that once you are committed to protecting your freedom, once you are unafraid of the bully, once you decide to stand up to the bully, now a lot of things that may seem impossible become possible. So let's talk about this bully Let's talk about Vladimir Putin and Russia. In many ways, for those that don't know their history, Russia has menaced Ukraine for centuries. But at the same time, Ukrainians have grown up speaking Russian in many parts of Ukraine. Uh, these are two countries and cultures that have lived side by side for a long time. Are you shocked at what has become of Russia under Putin with these war crimes and the deterioration uh, of Russian society under Putin. Is this a surprise to you, these horrific crimes that they're committing inside Ukraine, or should we have seen this coming? One thing I forgot to say when you asked me about my emotions, my and my compatriots' emotions during the first days and weeks, was this. So I was almost confident that once Russians actually see, you know, not through their propaganda TV, not on talk shows, but in real life, they will see that their missiles are killing innocent Ukrainian civilians, destroying Ukrainian peaceful cities. So I was confident once they see that level of destruction and madness, that they will wake up to reality, they will pour out onto their streets, and they will demand their government to put an end to this madness instantly. 
Now, day after day, as we stood up to the enemy, we also saw that Russians didn't protest. Russians seemed to be in agreement with their leadership. So this is the first thing that shocked us. The fact that Russians, it is not Ukrainians actually who were saying for the last couple of decades that, you know, we are brotherly nations. We always said that, look, there are some similarities in the language that we speak. We do have some uh, pages uh, which are common to our history, but we never said, we always viewed ourselves as an independent nation, you know, with our own history, with our own culture, with our own language and traditions. Now, it was Russians who said that, you know, Ukraine was a brotherly kind of nation to them. So you don't do that to your brothers and sisters. You don't kill your brothers and sisters with heavy artillery. With You don't send tanks to destroy the homes of your brothers. And, you know, indeed, there are even now a lot of people in Ukraine who use Russian language as, you know, as their uh, native language. This is how it worked out historically. But after Russians have pounded cities like Kharkiv, which is predominantly Russian-speaking, the second largest city in Ukraine, after they nearly like destroyed it, the first couple of months were unbearable. You know, people fled Kharkiv because it was like a war zone, the same way that you know Mariupol was or uh, other places. So a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians have woken up to reality, and they realized that as long as you are Ukrainian, it doesn't matter what language you speak. Russians want to destroy you. They want to destroy your identity, your culture, your home. So I hope and I'm confident that by now there are nobody, at least in Europe and in the Western free nations, who think that you know we are some kind of connected nation. We are different. We are worlds apart when it comes to our values, when it comes to our understanding of the modern world and our plans and future aspirations. And so you've been on a trip in Australia uh, rallying support for Ukraine. I heard you speaking at an event. You said uh, to the audience it reminded you of home. I'm just wondering how hard it is for you to see countries that are living normally whilst your country is being ravaged by this awful invasion. How does that feel to be outside uh, of Ukraine right now, knowing what's happening right back home? Well, the first reaction, of course, is the one of disbelief. And um, it is very difficult to understand, you know, how is it possible for people to lead normal lives at the time when such a huge tragedy is taking place in the heart of Europe, in the middle of the civilization. But then I understand that, you know, life goes on because, look, even in some Ukrainian cities, we are trying now to restore at least some level of normalcy of life because it is not because this is exactly what Russians want to achieve. They want to us to stop having a normal life. They want our children to stop having a normal life. So some degree of normalcy um, is necessary, you know, for our mental health, because if we want to prevail over the enemy, we need to stay strong mentally as well as physically. Um, so from that perspective, by now, you know, it's, it's okay that while Ukraine is defending global freedom on the front lines, it kind of gives an opportunity to the rest of the world to lead normal lives. I just hope that people appreciate it and understand this. 
because when I see normal people, when I, you know, on my trip uh, in Australia, um, I just see that, I just see people like my people. This is what we used to be like 12 months ago, 13 months ago. We were normal people. We we go to, we went to cinemas, to shopping centers. We would go for barbecues. Our children would normally go to school, kindergartens, and then overnight it happened. So in my conversations with the people I meet, I try to stress that point that, you know, don't take anything for granted because what the life that you have now, we have seen how it happened in our case, can change overnight. And for us to ensure that it doesn't happen, we need all of us, I mean, the international community of free nations, we need to contain the virus of Russian evil in Ukraine. And it is possible. It is, we have shown that it is possible. We just have to stop dragging our feet. The international military system must come, you know, fast and we can do it. So let's talk about the stakes here because there's two schools of thought. There's people like me who say that this is part of a global struggle for democracy. But what do you say to people that say, well, this is a distant war in Eastern Europe? Eastern Europe's a long way away from Australia. Yeah, is this something part, is it something bigger or, or yeah, how do you make that argument to those who want to minimise the conflict and say, well, this is not for us to get involved in? Well, look, I will explain it um, the following way. When I speak to my counterparties and my friends from countries like Poland, like the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and when I ask them, so... Can you explain to me in simple words, why are you so involved? Why your countries provide so much support to Ukraine in this difficult time? The immediate answer is, we are not naive. So our neighbors who have very good memories of what Russian foot and Russian tanks on their territories mean, they are not naive. They understand very well that this war began in Ukraine, and as an international community, we have two options, either to end it in Ukraine or allow it to spill over and destroy the rules-based international order. And these are not just some uh, fluffy words, rules-based international order. There are many bad people, I'll be very simplistic, but there are tyrants and there are regimes which are very, very questionable from the point of view of their respect for human rights, uh, for, their, for, for, for equality, they are watching this situation very closely. And if they get a signal that it is okay for large countries to go after small countries, to push them around, to grab their territories, to deprive them of their freedom and independence, now we will wake up in an entirely different world. And this will be no longer the world where somebody would be able to say that, oh, that doesn't concern us because it's too far away because we are all interconnected. Look, a very simple example, because as a result of this war, Russians have uh, you know, stopped Ukraine from being able to export uh, commodities like agricultural wheat, grain, sunflower oil. Now, as a result, there was a threat of a global food crisis because many countries in Middle East, in Northern Africa, depend on their survival, on Ukraine's ability to deliver them these goods, these agricultural products, number one. Number two, 
Russians have been very reckless and they have uh, gained control temporarily because we will get it back of the second largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Now, is that something that shouldn't concern people in Australia, in Brazil or in China or in, I think if we are facing a nuclear threat or a nuclear blackmail, that concerns all of us. So we live in a globalized world, you know, we live in a world where everything is interconnected. So those who think that it is possible to sit on the fence, that this will blow over and this will not have impact on their daily lives, that they will be able, if, God forbid, this will never happen, but let's hypothetically assume, if Russia prevails and they think that things will be back to normal, that's a big mistake because Russians are not after Ukraine. Russians are after the world order, the world order which they are unhappy with because they don't like human rights. They don't like religious freedom. They don't like equality, LGBT. Everything that we in civilized nations stand for, they despise openly. So if we want our world to descend into that darkness, then it's okay to switch off Ukraine and watch movies on Netflix. But I don't think that's a way out. I think we need to stay engaged. We need to, all of us, you know, we will fight this war, but citizens in other countries, they have to be connected to their elected politicians and demand that they support Ukraine because, you know, this war should be ended there and, and, and not become a protracted war that could potentially spill over. And so, uh, you know, there's been... Uh, support from Australia militarily and economically for the war in Ukraine and Ukrainian defence. But what specifically could Australia be doing more of? I've personally argued that we should be sending a hell of a lot more. But what are the specific requests? We obviously sent 90 Bushmasters, uh, some howitzers. But to, to break it down into the specifics, because I think you've made a beautiful case there for the why. So what are the how and the what now? What is required to make sure that Ukraine can get these victories as quickly as possible? Now, when I hear that question, uh, a simple way for me to answer it, give us what you can as soon as you can. It's a very, look, let's not forget that this is the most intense warfare since the end of the Second World War. Now, the reports that we get on a daily basis from the front lines, they are horrible. There are some friends of mine, new friends who I've met in Australia. Look, when I started showing them footage from the war, from the front lines, they and these are grown men, they've asked me to stop because their psychic was unable to digest that. It was too upsetting. It was too horrible for them. So when it comes to support, I say, give us what you can because, you know, we need it on the front lines. It's not like for, for many countries around the world, we understand that everybody has to maintain certain level of their defense capabilities. That's fine. But right now, there is a war that threatens all of us taking place in Ukraine. This is where all those weapon systems are needed. I went um, during my trip to Australia to Bendigo, which is the facility, as you know, that produces Bushmasters and uh, Hawkeyes, which are smaller versions of Bushmasters, right? Four by four armored vehicles. So I know that, for example, these Hawkeyes, 
that are cutting edge modern technology. The Australian government has at the moment 1,100 of them. The Australian government has about a thousand bushmasters, different variations. Some are very, some are medical bushmasters. Okay, allowing to evacuate people from the battlefield, the warriors. When I said to my colleagues from Australia, I, I called my friends in Ukraine and I said, "Look, I went to this facility and I saw bushmasters, which are, you know, uh, equipped like ambulance bushmasters." My friend told me, please ask them to send us at least three because we need to be able to evacuate our wounded soldiers from the battlefield. And one other thing which I want to mention, which is also something that was pointed out to me by my Australian friends. And I know this because this is how we view our government. So I told you that the Australian government has 1,100 Hawkeyes, for example, right? But that was not entirely accurate. Because it is not the Australian government that has these Hawkeyes. It is the Australian people, the taxpayers. They are the ultimate beneficiaries and owners of every piece of kit that any government, you know, is in charge of. So I have seen so many, I mean, pretty much every Australian person I met, whether top-level politicians or an Uber driver, they've all said to me one thing. They said to me that they personally, they said to me what you've just said to me. They said that we believe that the Australian government can and should be doing more. So we are very grateful to the Australian people and Australian government for the support that we have received so far. Indeed, 90 Bushmasters have been committed. 60 of them are already in Ukraine. 30 more are on the way. Australia has been great in terms of multilateral diplomacy and supporting Ukraine in terms of imposing sanctions on Russia, in, in terms of voting uh, for the necessary resolutions at the UN General Assembly and everything. But if Australian government and Australian people can do more to bring the end to this war faster, we would only welcome that decision. We know it's possible. It's just a matter of, you know, making that decision and making it happen. I agree, and I've previously written about this. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I'm constantly arguing. I don't understand why we would keep tanks to cruise around the outback in when they could be better off served. Exactly, exactly. We one of the things, one of the one part of our mission was we invite Australia to join the international tank coalition. Now we know that Australia has a certain number of Abrams tanks. Yeah. We understand yeah. from from pardon. 56, 56, yeah. 56. It's not, on the one hand, a staggering number, but look, the United Kingdom pledged and gave to Ukraine 14 Challenger 2 tanks, and it's very helpful on the front lines because 14 main battle tanks, Challenger 2, they can mean a lot on a certain part of the front line. So, you know, if we understand, because I spoke with some of the prominent Australian military experts. And apparently, you know, it is not entirely correct to say that Australia as a, uh, as a country does not need tanks at all. But right now, today, maybe sending those tanks to Ukraine and joining the International Tank Coalition would be a wiser, militarily wiser decision than letting them rust somewhere in the 
silos or, or garages or, or military uh, units. You know what I mean? So um, totally. the invitation is open, and we hope that it, the message gets across to the decision makers. No, the, my argument is if we send our tanks to defeat Russia in Ukraine, we'll never have to use them closer to home. So I completely agree with you. Now, one thing I want to ask you as a communications expert, one of the, well, it's been talked about a lot, but I think underappreciated is just the way that Ukraine has dominated the information space. Clearly, you've got President Zelensky, who's an expert communicator from his entertainment career, but the use of social media and the domination of the space by ordinary Ukrainians, not just you know elected officials or representatives such as yourself, but every Ukrainian who has a phone has communicated about the war. But do you worry, or how difficult is it in a very busy world? Donald Trump got indicted a week ago. All these things are constantly happening around the world, inflation. How much do you worry about keeping the world's attention on what's happening in Ukraine? Because where there's attention, there's action. And these things we're talking about, the more people hear and care about them, the more likely they are to pressure their governments to act. So how do you think about that? Tell us about that challenge. I personally, by now, I've given somewhere between 700 and 800 interviews in different formats during the last 13 months. On average, every day, without any weekends, I give, you know, th three interviews. I mean, on Sundays when some, like, big events happen, it's more. And I will continue. I will not shut up until we win this war. I will continue to scream you know, at the top of my voice to our international partners. And I will find a way, always find a way to tell our story in such a way that engages the minds that reaches to the hearts of people that who are our friends and allies. Because, you know, for us, for Ukrainians, we find it difficult to be disengaged because every day, well, as I'm going through my Facebook um, feed, I see news of somebody killed on the front lines. Friends, you know, and these are not soldiers. These are not professional military. These are volunteers who, when the war came to our home, voluntarily joined the armed forces of Ukraine to protect their families, to protect their sons and daughters and mothers and, 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 and relatives. So... I understand that it is difficult, you know, to keep up the interest in, in, in a war that is going for such a long time. But you have seen that our president, he's like a genius communicator. He tirelessly speaks to the international audiences on a daily basis. He speaks to the presidents, he speaks to the parliaments, he speaks to the universities, to the business communities. We understand that, you know, we need to fight. And we need to keep talking about our fight because it's not just our fight. It's our common fight for the global freedom. This is why I hope that we will, you know, uh, not I hope, I know that we will win. Uh, and, um, you know, winning on the information front and maintaining that interest is part of our game plan, put it that way. And so going to the future, you know, one of the big things that this war is about is Vladimir Putin refusing to let Ukraine 
choose its own destiny. So Ukrainians have said they want to be Western democratic, they want to join the EU and NATO. Can you see a future where Ukraine is a member of NATO, member of the European Union? Is that a feasible thing, do you think, or is this a pipe dream? That's the only feasible future for us. And that's, I think, something that is day by day very well understood by our allies. Now, there can be no safety in Europe unless Ukraine joins NATO. Right now, we are de facto already a member of NATO. We are using Western standard NATO military equipment. We are protecting the eastern flank of NATO. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, boast, but unfortunately, unfortunately, Ukrainian army now is probably the best army in Europe. Now, yeah, NATO yes. alliance, yeah, NATO yes. alliance only stands to gain from this. Uh, we are integrating and making our army interoperable with NATO members on so many different levels, from logistics, procurement, repairs, uh, supply, reconnaissance, data, intelligence sharing. So th these processes already began to happen. So it's only a matter of, you know, making the formalities and getting it right. So I hope that after Sweden joins, the next will be Ukraine. So we'll become the 33rd member of NATO alliance. And as far as the European Union is concerned, you know, we have also seen, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of tragic way, uh, but thanks to this war, we have seen uh, the revival of unity within the European Union. We have seen the revival of their understanding of their common purpose. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are almost no countries in the European Union who are at the moment opposed to uh, allowing Ukraine uh, join the European Union. And I think it's, it's, you know, but for now, we all have to be focused on winning the war and bringing the perpetrators to justice. Once that is done, I think we will go through a fast track procedure, both when it comes to joining NATO and the EU. And so I know this question is going to be hard for you to answer because I can never answer it myself. People always ask me, when does this war end? How does this war end? What do you think? Right. Let's try to be optimistic. This war ends on the day, which let's hope will be in 2023, when the last Russian soldier is either killed on the Ukrainian soil or leaves it or is taken prisoner of war. This will be the day when Ukrainian flag will fly over Crimea, over Donetsk, over Luhansk, over Zaporizhia and Kherson, those parts which are temporarily occupied. And this will be the day when we as international community will move to the next stage of this war, which will be bringing the perpetrators to justice. A lot is being done already. You know, you know that the International Criminal Court has already issued an arrest warrant against Putin and uh, one of the top Russian officials for the uh, heinous crime of uh, child deportations, children deportation. Uh, we have documented over 90,000 war crimes that have been committed by these animals on our land. Mass murders, rapes, pillaging, uh, looting, destruction of cultural heritage, 
I don't think there is one war crime on the Geneva Conventions that has not been committed by these fascists, by these rushists. So they will have to pay. Then there will be a long process of healing. There will be a process of reparations. We will have to rebuild our countries. Russians will have to deal with their own issues. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. But we see that day, the day of victory very soon. And I think we will celebrate it by throwing a massive beach party on the Crimean beach. I told you that before and I will repeat it now. And everybody is invited. Oh, listen, everyone's going to have to get in the queue behind me because I would not miss that party for the world. And I, I hope you're right. And I'm anyone who reads my stuff knows that I'm quite bullish um, on Ukraine's prospects. And I think that... Uh, Misha, you can... You, you you can arrive to that party on one of the submarines that will be uh, given as a, or part of the AUKUS, right? So on a nuclear sub, or you yeah. know, point on a nuclear sub with Albo and uh, and the rest of the cabinet. But um, look, I think that's a great place to switch from the most serious part of this conversation. It's been a very serious conversation. In fact, there could be nothing more serious uh, than what's happening in Ukraine. But Given you are a guest on my show, Yuri, and you know how much I love you very dearly, I have to ask you this question that I ask all my guests, which is the barbecue question. So three Australians at Yuri's for a barbecue. Who are they and why? Uh, three Australians are in barbecue where? With you, at yours. Oh, with me. All right. So uh, at my place. In Crimea, wherever you want to host it. <laughs> all, right, all, right, all right. So uh, we are at my place. I have a nice uh, barbecue which resembles uh, Kremlin. Uh, the flames are coming up. I'm making the barbecue. I'm uh, <laughs> telling my Australian friends the story of our victory. Everybody is surprised and in disbelief that it happened so fast because nobody believed that it was possible. And uh, as a cherry on the cake, I tell my friends that tonight is a very special night because while we will be having our barbecue, we will be watching live on all major TV networks, including Ukraine. We will be watching the beginning of the tribunal and Putin will be in the docks and will be hearing, he will be hearing the charges that are laid against him. So I and my Australian friends, we toast to justice. We toast to victory and we sit back with popcorn and watch this tyrant and terrorist being brought to justice. And so are there three people that you would like to uh, invite specifically or, or is everyone welcome? Well, uh, you are already on that list. <laughs> I don't count. <laughs> and uh, there is a couple of other great Aussie guys uh, who are very dear to me, yeah. But it, we, it, it's three is not enough. It's going to be full house, you know. A couple of buses, load, a couple of buses minimum. No worries. Well, Yuri, um, you know, speaking on behalf of all Australians, uh, you know, we wish you the very best, and we want to see uh, Ukraine prevail, but also catch up again in much, much, much better circumstances. This is an awful, 
thing that you are doing, but it's a very brave thing that you are doing on behalf of your country and your people. So uh, all the best, Yuri. Slava Ukraina, mate. Heroim Slava. Thank you, Misha. G'day, Diplomates fans. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Yuri. It's extraordinarily powerful listening directly from Ukrainians talking about uh, what they are suffering from right now. It's absolutely awful and we must do everything we can. Now, I've got a question here from John. John asked me, Misha, in light of Donald Trump's indictment and his massive jump in support amongst Republican primary voters, do you still believe that Donald Trump and Joe Biden won't be the candidates at the 2022, sorry, 2024 US presidential election? Well, John, that's a good question. Now, firstly, I should say I have not said that Joe Biden won't be um, the candidate. I've said, I've written that I don't think he should run because I think the country is really desperate to get past, frankly, Biden and Trump. Um, and clearly, if Donald Trump wasn't running, I think Joe Biden wouldn't be running. He clearly did what was required of him to beat Trump and the country was desperate for him to do it. In fact, it's a bit of an aberration for a Democratic president to be elected at the age of 78. They tend to be much younger, dynamic sort of characters, a Clinton and Obama, Kennedy. So that by itself, I think, kind of highlights how unusual it was. But nevertheless, with Trump still lurking around and being the front, rather, it would appear um, for the Republican nomination, I think Biden will definitely run, and it appears that he is going to run. And certainly, the way they've restructured the uh, so the Democratic primary, uh, with the first one being South Carolina, which is basically Biden's favorite home state uh, when it comes to Democratic primary races. I don't think there's any danger at this point, at least, that he's going to run. Though there's talk that he might not be making the decision until later in the year. Now, so that's that's Biden. In terms of Trump. Look, it's true that he's had a big bump um, since the indictment for the hush money to Stormy Dan, who's a porn star. Uh, let's see how sticky that um, bump is. What tends to happen with Trump's polling is when something happens, there's a big burst of interest and then it, it tails away again as people get Trump fatigue. Unfortunately, I think it is true that of the four indictments that Trump's facing, uh, one for the hush money, two for the insurrection on January 6th, three for his pressuring of the Secretary of State in Georgia to find him 11,000 votes, essentially election interference, and of course the withholding of top secret documents in Mar-a-Lago from, from his days as president. It's undoubted that this is the weakest case of the four and uh, probably wouldn't have been best to lead with it. And US has a crazy system as well where... Uh, their presidents, sorry, their presidents, their judicial system, yeah, their, their d- district attorneys are elected. So this um, person who's pursuing these charges against Trump, notwithstanding there's a strong case, it would appear prima facie, uh, he is an elected politician, he's a Democrat. And so that is problematic. It looks partisan because in some ways it is. Uh, so anyway, it's a long way of saying, let's see. I think there'll be more charges stacked on top of Trump and let's see how he starts to go with the weight of more and more charges. And he's now not just ex-president Donald Trump, not twice uh, impeached former President Donald Trump. He was now criminal defendant, indicted Donald Trump. And I think that will weigh on him. But 
what remains to be seen in the Republican primary, and I actually don't think it'll be DeSantis either, it remains to be seen whether someone's prepared to take him on. It seems that no matter what happens, even critics of Trump, they can't help themselves but to say, oh, but, you know, he's okay, or uh, they don't want to upset him or his voters. And as a result, he just gets stronger or he doesn't weaken sufficiently to beat him. To beat a politician, you've got to attack a politician. Barack Obama took Hillary Clinton on head-on in 2007, 2008, and that's how he became the Democratic nominee and then the president. There's no way around it in politics. You've got to get the gloves on and you've got to get in the ring. So I think anyone hoping to finesse their way around Trump, he's never going to allow it, clearly. The moment he thinks you're getting any sort of momentum, he tears you down as he's done with DeSantis and he'll do it with anybody else who looks likely. Uh, for the uh, nomination. Anyway, that's the Republican side of things. The truth of the matter is even Trump, even if Trump becomes a nominee, uh, I think he's almost no chance of winning a general election. Uh, his his pro- approval rating publicly is diabolically low. And I think independent voters are completely turned off by him. Obviously, Democrats are too. Anyway, it's a long answer. Uh, so I don't think, I think we probably end up with Biden versus someone that's not Trump is my bet right now. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. If you're new to the show, please rate and review us. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.